Hello, everybody. If all of a sudden, Deb, we're recording? Awesome. If all of a sudden you were put in charge of the whole world, you were made the king, and all the world's resources and many of its people were at your fingertips, then what would you want? I guess it's a similar question to if you're stranded on a desert island, what three things would you bring with you? What would be the most valuable things to you? If you had everything available to you, what would you find valuable? And it makes us wonder, you know, what is valuable and why is it valuable? People spend their whole lives seeking after that which they consider valuable. And if, can we get it? You know, can we, can we attain it? And that, that can make all the difference in someone either being happy or, or being just completely frustrated their whole lives. Elon Musk was recently interviewed and uh, questions arose. This was an interview I think that was done yesterday. And questions arose about his comments concerning George Soros. I think I mentioned that a couple of days ago. I'm, I'm uh, kind of fascinated by this man recently, uh, Musk. Uh, anyway... Uh, and he, uh, Musk made some comments about Soros uh, hating humanity and civilization. And the interviewer was asking him about this and saying, asking first, you know, why would you do such a thing? Why would you say something? Why would you, why would you make these forays as an owner of big corporation, the richest man in the world? Why would you even enter into anything like that? Uh, Musk, Musk's response was something about free speech, and then the interviewer asked him about, well, what if you lose money? Uh, you know, your advertisers back out because you're getting involved in political things, you know, on your Twitter account, whatever. What if you lose advertisers? You lose money. And Musk paused, and it's amazing. I watched this. I read about his pause, and then I went to watch it, and it was truly an uncomfortable amount of time that he paused. It was only like 10 seconds. But he just stared off in the distance in silence for longer than anybody should have. And the interviewer is uncomfortable. Even watching it, it gets you a little uncomfortable. It's like, did he pass out or something? And after his long pause, he referenced this movie, Princess Bride, and in this scene, and I even rewatched this scene, I love this movie, I've seen it multiple times, that this character, Montan, uh, I'm going to mess up his name so I won't say it, he finally gets his nemesis who killed his father at the tip of his sword, and he's about to kill the man that he's been searching for his whole life to kill. And then he has, he has him cornered, and he says, offer me money. And the man says, I'll give you anything you want. Offer me power. The man says, this evil man says, you can have the whole kingdom. Offer me anything that I want. And the man says, anything. I will give you anything. And uh, his response is, I want my father back, which he can't get back. The man he's about to kill is the one who killed his father. And that was uh, Elon Musk's response. Why would you say all of this? And Musk says this, offer me money, offer me power. I don't care. That's what he said, I don't care. And it reminded me of another movie, It's a Wonderful Life, which the end of that movie, 
there's someone in the crowd, and if you know the movie, uh, it's, they're all in George Bailey's house, and it's a big, huge celebration. At the end of the movie, somebody says, George Bailey is the richest man in town. And, of course, he was. And what does that movie bring out, which everybody loves? I mean, almost everybody loves. It brings out the fact that what is valuable in life. I find it interesting that the interviewer of Elon Musk was asking Musk, what if you lose money? He's asking that to the richest man in the world. How much is he going to lose? If Musk lost $10 million, it's like you losing a quarter. Like, it means nothing to him. What if you lose money? Like, he cares. But actually, it turns out that in our modern society, many rich people do very much care about how many dollars are in that bank account. You know, uh, one billion and 1.1 billion make all the difference to them. And this has been proven over and over again. People hoard. Value, rich people value their riches and they hoard them. And this is a problem with our modern society. The interviewer of Musk is incredulous. What if you lose money? It's like it's the only thing that matters to him. And it's the only thing that matters to a lot of people. The rich are concerned about losing their riches, so they hoard. The populace is distracted by so many things that they give little or no thought to anything that is truly valuable. They don't care. So what is valuable? And everybody has to answer this for themselves. Is it having lots of money in the bank? Well, to the greatest man who ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ, what was valuable to him? Jesus is the king of all humanity. Jesus is the king of the world. The world doesn't know that yet, but they will. When he lived... The most powerful king in the world also lived in Rome. A man who took the title Augustus lived at the same time that Jesus was born. He was the first emperor of Rome. He was the greatest emperor. I mean, up to that point, he was the Caesar, Augustus. And it's, it's no... Um, mistake, because God plans everything, that Jesus was born at the time where this Caesar ruled the known world, and how different these two men were, and what they valued, how different that was. And that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, looking at uh, our opening to Second Thessalonians, we see what is valuable. Let's open up in prayer and let's thank God that he has shown us what's valuable in life and, and how to get it. God has promised to give us that which is most valuable. He's promised it to everybody if they so choose to receive it. And so let's pray that we come to see and understand the, the, the uh, truth behind this principle. So with humility and reverence, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity to be before you, to hear your word through your spirit, 
to come to a, a very real recognition and a reminder of what is most valuable in life. We're so easily distracted by many things. We can get our minds on the wrong things so very quickly. We can be in search of the wrong things so very quickly. And we thank you, Father, that in your word we are brought back to what is valuable. We are brought back to what is worthy. And so we ask you, Father, that through your spirit we would have a clear understanding of what you are telling us in your word. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you uh, possessed the, uh, what you valued most, wouldn't you consider yourself the richest you could be? If you actually possessed what you valued most, wouldn't you consider yourself to be the richest you could be? <clears throat> and this is why people wanting stuff from God without God having changing their hearts to see what is valuable is just a plain old waste of stuff. And it's actually harmful to a person to receive things that they lust for and things that are not valuable, things that are not worthy of God's creation. And then when we receive them, we actually hurt ourselves. Uh, God, <coughs> sorry, God gave himself and his life in order to show us what real value is. So Christ came into the world. Heaven became a man. Uh, God became a man. And as is stated by Paul in Corinthians, he who is rich became poor. Uh, and therefore, he became humanity. So what he did was is to reveal to us, to the human race, to all who would believe and accept him, what is truly valuable in life. What is life and what is its value? What's valuable in it? Uh, <coughs> he promised that when you come to know what's valuable, that he would give it to you. And that is an ironclad promise. That when you and I come to understand what is truly valuable, we'll find out that we possess it. And he's going to give us a life that will enjoy that value. And it's the riches of riches. Uh, and, you know, uh, Musk... And I, I know that Elon Musk, from an interview he gave not long ago, that he's not a believer in Jesus Christ. And so what I possess and what you possess is a millionfold more valuable than what he possesses. And, and I, I do mean that not just in heaven waiting for heaven. I mean now. Now that we, that the potential for happiness and joy and fulfillment, and you know every good thing that everybody wants is ours in Christ Jesus. And all the money in the world ain't going to get it for anybody who has rejected the God-man. <clears throat> so I would say, now you can't serve two masters. And God says, Jesus says this plainly, that you can't serve money and me. At the same time. And so God says, will you come to see what I have for you, what is valuable? I give it to you. But you can't serve me and serve something else at the same time. I would confidently say that the majority of the world is greatly impoverished. And I do not mean that in an economic, worldly, material way. 
I mean that first world people live third world lives. Uh, sure, and, and you know, materialistically, they live first world lives, but according to God, they live third world lives, third world spiritual lives. And, <clears throat> excuse me, they're not content. They're not happy. They're not able to handle the smallest problem. And even Christians are like this, sadly enough. And that is because they haven't actually found out what is valuable. Because only the Word of God will tell us. So we finished our study of 1 Thessalonians. It's only natural that we turn to a study of 2 Thessalonians. These two letters are written less than one year apart. They're written by Paul in the same place, from the same place in Corinth, written to the same people. Uh, the second letter is very much like the first, and that's why it's valuable to do them together. Um, it, the second letter is a letter of encouragement. It has the same theme. It's encouraging believers who have begun, on a very positive note, believers who have begun uh, uh, to, with a great faith in what they have heard and to apply what they have heard. But they're young in the faith, and so they need a lot of encouragement. But we find out that for those of us who are progressing in the spiritual life or for those anybody who is growing in the Christian life, we need constant encouragement. Now, that doesn't mean that we depend on people to come to us and tell us, keep going, keep going, rah, 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 anything like that. No, it's a, it's a matter of being encouraged by God's word again and again. And by people, but we're not to depend on the gift of encouragement from people. That will come, and we absolutely need it. But the majority, the great encourager to us is God's word. And so as we turn to God's Word and we see it again and we read it again, we're reminded of what it is that is valuable. So we all need, to, we all need continued encouragement from the Scriptures. As we'll see also, we need continued encouragement from prayer. We need to be praying for one another. There is so much opposition to what we're trying to do. And that's why we need constant encouragement. There is so much opposition to what we're trying to do. And that warrants frequent encouragement and frequent reminders. We need to be reminded from the Word of God of the superb nature of Jesus Christ. We need to be reminded of Him and what He did and who He made us to be. We need to be reminded of that consistently. We need to be reminded of the stature or the value of this world and the kingdom of God. We need to know the difference between them because we're members of one kingdom and we're living in another. And we need to constantly be reminded of the value and the stature of this present world kingdom and the kingdom of God that is to come. Thy kingdom come. We must be careful not to sleep, meaning to get distracted from that which is true and fall asleep spiritually. We need to not sleep, but let the light of Christ shine on us every day. Remember in 1 Thessalonians that we're children of the day, we're children of the light, we're sons of light, sons and daughters of light. <coughs> so we need to be sanctified entirely. Right at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So, Again, we're, we're back to, therefore, what is valuable. 
You see, you can tell somebody that something's valuable, but if they don't believe it to be, it's not. Not to them. You can tell a kid that hard work is a valuable skill, but until they're convinced of it, they're not going to do it. You could go to a you know, a foreign country and give them, uh, I don't know, let give to some third world country uh, uh, a very calm, you know, I don't know, give them a computer. Say, here, this is valuable. I don't have electricity and I don't have the internet. And you've given me a plastic box with a bunch of metal inside of it. Uh, what am I supposed to do with that? So if, if you brought the world's best computer or whatever that you brought into a, the, the most impoverished third world people, they could do nothing with it. It's what we consider to be valuable. So what is valuable and why is it valuable? Now, obviously, to people, money is valuable. But why is money valuable? This course made me think of the Weimar Republic. Germany had an enormous debt after World War I. Their plan, Germany's plan for the future, was to print a lot of money and it would be okay because they would win the war. Uh, sadly for them, they lost the war and they ended up in debt to a lot of foreign governments. So their solution to the debt was to print money. I saw, as I was looking at this online, I saw a, a, a bill, a currency for something like 500 million francs, you know. They, here you could have a bit, one, one piece of paper that was 500 million, and it wouldn't buy you anything. Uh, in this picture, you know, I'm used to seeing the picture with the wheelbarrow full of money, but this is even better. These kids in the Weimar Republic, this is just after World War One. it's about 1923, Money is so not valuable that the kids are playing with it. That's stacks of money right there. There's like millions and millions of useless dollars or marks, uh, German marks. Money became valueless due to hyperinflation. So this shows you, you know, what, what is the value of money? It's what it gets you. And in our world, if you're rich, you get respect. That's what a lot of people want. You get power. You get respect. People want to be you. People admire you. People and, and that kind of thing. Plus, you get all the toys that you want uh, and anything that you want. You get the nice houses and all of that. But, of course, as the Beatles famously sang, uh, I don't care too much for money. Money can't buy me love. Today, we're going to focus on an important word in Second Thessalonians chapter 1. And it's the word worthy, worthy. Uh, as a noun, it's worthy. And actually, in your text, if you go to Second Corinthians chapter one, if I haven't told you to go there, Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians, not Corinthians, sorry, Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians chapter one. If you look at verse three, it says, "We ought always to give thanks for you, brethren, as is only fitting." See, that word fitting there in verse 3 is the word worthy. It's only worthy of us to do this, in other words. But fitting is a, a fine translation there. It's only fitting that we give thanks, and then Paul gives the reason why it's fitting that they give thanks. Uh, there's also the, uh, uh, the verb, which is also in our chapter here, which is to be considered worthy. 
And the verb is that someone considers you worthy. And when this is said by God, it is the highest of compliments. That you're considered worthy. And we'll see that in this paragraph as well. So the the, uh, second Thessalonians opens with a paragraph of encouragement through uh, the prayers and thanksgiving of Paul. It's a very common opening for Paul, but it matches very much 1 Thessalonians in that he gives thanks and he prays for the same reason uh, that he mentions in 1 Thessalonians. And then he conveys to them why he's proud of them. Uh, He conveys to them that he is, and actually he says this, we boast. We boast about you to the other churches in the area uh, because of your great, and then he lists some things. And one of them is your faith, The second one is your love, and the third one is your endurance. And so faith, love, endurance, and endurance is much like hope. You know, this is why people do endure, or Christians do endure, is because they have a confidence in the fact that God is going to come through, that God is going to supply, that God is going to empower, that God is going to do what he always does. And so they have hope, and that God is going to take care of their future Uh, Is anyone going to get away with anything? No, God's going to judge. Uh, When's the Lord coming back? Any time. So all of these things are hope in which we look forward to, we reach forward to tomorrow, to even the next moment. And that's hope. And so if you go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we see this exact same thing, this triad. And again, just to show you how both letters are letters of encouragement. 1 Thessalonians 1-2 says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. And so Paul here is encouraging. We give thanks for you, and for particular reasons. We don't give thanks to you because, you know, uh, you send us money, or we don't give thanks for you because, you know, for any other reason, like you're just awesome people, you know, anything like that, is we actually give thanks for you for the actual real spiritual divine virtues that you exhibit, which are these three things. You know, this we think of 1 Corinthians 13, 13, they're, they're these three, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And this is the, the, the true, uh, not the true, but a very common and, and, and kind of encompassing triad to what we are. We have faith, we trust, we're faithful, we're believing, we have love, love for God, love for others, and we have hope. You know, no matter what hits us, here come the storms of life, but we're the house built upon the rock and we stand. You know, and that's us. Are we always like this? We wish we were. But, you know, this is what we're at. This is what we are. This is what God has made us to be. This is what we're after, and that's the road that we're on. And we'll see in, so if you go back to Second Thessalonians, we see this as it is in First Thessalonians, this increase of this same thing. It's not just faith, but faith increasing. It's not, well, love, well, I had love yesterday. You should have saw me. I was great. 
No, but it's love abounding. It's not like I have hope or endurance, but this endurance is always increasing. That's the nature of the word. So getting back to value, what, what Paul says of them here in both letters is what is valuable about the Thessalonians is their faith and that it's increasing, their love and that that's abounding, and their endurance, which is linked to hope, which is their love of the future and their ability to follow God's commandments no matter what. That's really what endurance is. So here come the problems of life. I'm following my Lord. Here comes the easy life. I'm following my Lord. Here comes great prosperity. I'm following my Lord. You know, here comes great adversity that's trying to stop me from following my Lord. I say, get out of the way. I'm following my Lord. That's what we're called to. That's what Paul is proud of. And that is what's valuable in this life. And anybody can have it. Anybody. Any born-again believer can have it to to such an amount that as Paul would write, eye is not seen, ear is not heard, not entered into the mind of man. And he would also write, exceeding abundantly beyond anything that we could ever ask or think. And that is the fullness of God within us. A relationship with the Almighty that is absolutely pure and undefiled. And intensely personal. And that's what true value is. And yet, here the human race without God is scrambling around. It's, you know, it's interesting to see in history what people valued. Uh, you know, things that, you know, things that used to be valuable that aren't valuable anymore. I, uh, I was always uh, amazed that when I, um, as many of you know, I was trained as a chemist and I came to find out one time that uh, aluminum used to be more expensive than gold. And the reason being because you know, you don't find just pure aluminum in the ground. You find aluminum ores. You know, it's some aluminum usually with silicates and stuff like that. And to make pure aluminum, you've got to take the aluminum that's in the, in the ore and it's more in an ionic form, and you've got to purify it. And the amount of money it costs to purify aluminum from the stuff that's in the ground was exceedingly expensive. So pure aluminum... Like that's in your house, likely right now in in bucket loads in a roll, is you know was more valuable than gold. And then some smart chemist came around and figured out how to make pure aluminum out of aluminum ore for like hardly nothing. He figured out a chemical process that would do it easily and very inexpensively. And his name was Alcoa, and he started the Alcoa industry. He's another one. I'm sure as he and his family, if he's still alive, he's probably not. They're billionaires. You know, he, he basically invented aluminum foil in everybody's house. So, <clears throat> you know, what was valuable once? All right, anyway, so here we go. Look at verse Second Thessalonians 1.3. Uh, I'm skipping the intro for now. We'll get back to it. But for today's lesson, 
There's only a couple of snippets I'm taking out of this. So we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, as is only worthy, because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you towards one another grows even greater. So notice the faith is enlarged. This word means that it's increasing and your love, this word grows even greater. It's a stronger word than that. This Greek word means to superabound. It's a superabounding love towards everybody. I love that. I'm going to spend an entire class on this. That phrase right there in verse 3, and the love of each one of you towards one another. Doesn't that sound somewhat repetitive? Each one of you towards one another. It's like too many others and too many ones. And when you see it in Greek, it's even worse. It doesn't, it, it, it's just Paul piling on all of you, everyone, each one. He, he says all three. Each one of you, all, everybody. That's actually how it is. Each one of you, all, everybody. <laughs> so who's excluded from that, right? And this, this is God's love towards everyone. Everyone. And so, uh, verse 4, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. There's endurance which goes with perseverance. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy, here's the verb now, considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are from which indeed you are suffering. Now then in verses 6 through 10 is kind of a parenthesis of what God is going to do for you who are being persecuted and to them who are persecuting and it's very harsh. Very harsh. In fact, some commentators don't think that Paul wrote this because it's so harsh. But as if Paul's not harsh in his other letters. Of course he is. This is clearly Paul. But it's, he's very harsh. And, and so what we see here in the middle, verses 6 through 10, is God is going to take care of all justice. Don't fret about the evildoer. Right? That's verses 6 through 10. Paul's telling him, look, you're being persecuted for the kingdom of God of which you are worthy that's why you're being persecuted. Don't worry about them. God's going to take care of them. And also you. So then skip down to verse 11. To this end also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling. That's your election. And fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. So that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our Lord and the Lord Jesus Christ. These are astounding words, really. Um, for creatures such as us to glorify the God man Jesus Christ is beyond words. Now, um, and one. It's uh, not to get distracted here, but for a second, if I may say that if you've ever found yourself, you know, trying to understand what God has done and who he is and what we are to him in this life, and it's very hard to put it into words, there's a reason. 
because it's beyond words. But how else, you know, how else would we communicate it except by words? And so God had to find a way to communicate supernatural ideas and realities through finite human language. And God took Greek language to do it. He, he, he borrowed Greek language. I say borrowed, meaning that he took terms that used to mean things in the Greek word world before Jesus came. And he used those same words to describe things that had never happened before. Now think about that. The Greeks knew what agape was, but nobody really knew what agape was. <laughs> so God took their word, like logos, or logos. Logos is the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That logos is a very popular Greek word. It meant truth. It meant the word. It meant an essence of knowledge. And God took that word that didn't mean what he meant it to mean. And he put it in his New Testament and gave a whole new meaning to it. So how are we to take the old word, which means something old and not of God, and use the same exact word to mean something of God, and then truly understand that idea in our mind. How would we do that? How would God make that possible? That's an excellent question that I can leave out there. That's called a cliffhanger. I say that like a New England, a cliffhanger. How would God do that? How would God take finite language and make it make that language mean ideas to us that are divine, that we would comprehend, even with language that can't describe it. Uh, so, there's, we're going to focus on today first is, in verse 3, brethren, as is only fitting, we give thanks for you. In verse 5, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Right? You suffer in this world. Uh, So that isn't actually there in the language, but we'll get to that. But you're suffering in this world, and that's an indication of, is, is more better here, it's an indication of the fact that you are worthy for the kingdom of God, because God made you worthy, Christ made you worthy. And then, in verse 11, that our God would count you worthy. And all of these words come from this word, axios. Axios. It means worthy. But originally, this word meant the proper weight that balances the scales. And this, this is one of those words where etymology, which is the history of a word, actually really brings it alive. So where your scales are out of balance, axios means to put it into balance. So what you would do is, on in, the, in our uh, case here, on the B side, you would add more weight. So you add more until you get it perfectly level. And so you can see how this word would come to mean fitting, right, or worthy. That side side is worthy of that side. So when it comes to worthiness here, we're talking about things that are right, that are fitting, um that are, are, you know, that fit 
the scenario. So I was at the park today, but Bush Park down the street is absolutely blooming beautiful right now, right? Because Oregon is be- blooming beautiful right now. All of you people who you hear us complain about the rain that we, yeah, we get for however, I don't know, six months straight. <laughs> and all of a sudden the earth over here and this part of the world comes alive. The sun's out and everything's blooming. It's beautiful. And as I was going along the trail in the park, somebody had just thrown out a, a bottle. Uh, I don't know, some soft drink. And it's just lying there. And because this message was on my mind, I'm like, that is out of place. Right? Out of all of God's beauty, in a perfectly manicured garden, somebody threw this trash. Right? And that is not worthy to be there. So, in this case, axios means something is in God's world that shouldn't be there. And that, if you have what God says should be in his world, you are rich beyond dreams. I mean, all, I, who's got more than God? Who's purer? Who's more righteous? Who has true life? It's him. And when God gives the nod to you and says you are worthy, you are the richest person alive. Unfortunately for us in the church age, we're all as rich as, as everybody else. So what God wants us to do is tap into that. So it's another way of putting be etern- you know, entirely sanctified. Be worthy. And we'll see that. So go to Revelation 4 because as we always see that when it comes to looking at the meaning of something that's valuable in human life, go no further than Jesus Christ. He embodies it. If you want to know what love is, what valuable love, right? not distorted love, but valuable love, the love of God, you go to Christ. You want to know what truth is, endurance, Faith, prayer, all of these things that are uber valuable to living human life, he embodies it. And so, this word axios is a word that describes Christ's quality. In Revelation 4.11, now we have John sees a vision in heaven. And the, uh, this is the 24, I call them the four and 24, the, the four crazy creatures <laughs> who nobody knows what they are with the four different faces and all that, and the 24 elders. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. All right, so you see that. Worthy are you. Axios are you. So worthy is fitting, right? So worthy, weighty, fitting. Who's going to create? So, and what, they're, what he's being worshipped for, and this is God is being worshipped, is for the fact that he created all things. That he has honor and power. He created everything. And who else is going to do that? Who else is going to create everything? Satan? Nobody creates a thing. Satan has not created one atom. But yet God, from the smallest atom to the farthest galaxy, has created everything 
And he created it. How? How did he create it? With his word. He spoke. And it was done. That is worthy. But when you look at the word fitting here, or proper, you know, it's proper for God to do. Now, wonderfully, you read on. And then John continues his vision. And he sees God on his throne. And God in his right hand is holding a book. And that book... You know, as you see as you read through Revelation, is all that is in this Revelation. Really, God is holding in his right hand the book of Revelation. Uh, But, not just like what we're reading it, but, you know, anyway. uh, it's Everything that happens in Revelation is in this book. Well, John sees this vision of the book in the right hand of God, and then an angel in heaven asks, who's worthy to open the book? And no one was found. So John weeps. And then another angel says to John, Stop weeping because the Lion of Judah is worthy to open the book. Someone is worthy and his title is given. The Lion of Judah. But when John looks over at the Lion of Judah, what John sees is a lamb slain. And then the lamb... The slain lamb takes the book and he opens it. Seal 1 is opened. And that would begin chapter 6 of this these horrible plagues that come on planet Earth because of these seals. Um, now, notice in chapter 4, worthy are you, axios, worthy fitting are you because you created. And then in chapter 5, Worthy are you for what? Look at 5.9. This again is the four, uh, four uh, living creatures and the 24 elders. They say, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain. Now that's a far cry from being the God who creates the universe. Do you know, every pagan, you know, especially the world that Christ came into, everybody's religious. Everybody is. There ain't atheists around. Not like now. Everybody's religious. They're all worshiping some god, multiple gods. And there are many, there's many creation stories in these, in these pagan religions. And yet, the very one who created the universe is slain? Is this abnormal? I mean, it's beyond abnormal. It, it's hard for us to comprehend because we're so used to hearing it. I mean, we're brought up in a world where, I mean, everybody knows about the cross. In the Western world, at least. Everybody does. Um, but in the first century, in the Roman Empire, for these men to be running around saying God himself became a man and then died, makes absolutely no sense at all. It would make no sense to anybody. But notice the word worthy. There's Axios, verse 9. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, not just Israel, but the whole world. You have, been, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, a kingdom of priests. That sounds familiar. First Peter chapter 2, marvelous. 
and they will reign upon the earth. Then skip down to verse 12. And this is where the myriads of myriads say, that, uh, um, this is millions and millions of angels, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to re- receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The Lamb that was slain. But you see, the Lamb that was slain saved all who believed upon Him and made of them a kingdom, as you see in verse 10, who will reign upon the earth And they're not a kingdom of warriors. They're a kingdom of priests. Priests. Those who worship God. Pray to God. Love God's Word. People of peace. Now, ironically, and this is somewhat significant, when Pilate, when Jesus is before Pilate on trial for his life, Pilate says... He is not worthy of death. Pilate uses the same word, axios. Pilate says this, he's not worthy, the balance, the scale here, to execute this man is to have the balance out out of whack. Pilate says he's not worthy of death. And the murderer on Christ's right, on the cross next to him, says this man meaning Christ, is not worthy of death. It's amazing that both of them, Pilate and the murderer on the cross, say that Christ is not worthy of death. And this tells us something significant. That the world's idea of what is worthy is not heaven's idea of what is worthy. Was Did Jesus die innocently? Of course he did. But isn't that the reason why he's worthy to open the book? Absolutely. He's the slain lamb. He's not a guilty lamb. He's an innocent lamb without spot who takes away the sins of the world. Pilate says he's not worthy of death. Heaven says that he's worthy because of his death. And so go back, not, don't go back there yet, but back in 2 Thessalonians, to be have love, to have faith, to have endurance when you're persecuted is worthy. And the world would say, that ain't valuable. Suffering for your God, that ain't valuable. Loving the unlovable, that ain't valuable. Giving away everything that you have, if God tells you to, but you're exceedingly gracious. You don't care about money. That's not valuable. That's how people get poor. Promise me riches. Right? Uh, What's his name? Montoya. Promise me riches. Promise me power. Promise me everything. I don't want it. I don't care. And so worthy or valuable or fitting in God's world, in God's kingdom, is not the same as what it is here. Now, to drive this point home, yeah, we can just go to, if you want to, go to Acts chapter 5. Just a quick visit, and then we'll wrap this up. <coughs> Acts 5.41, we see those in the early church who say, wow, 
we're worthy. How about that? Meaning, we are rich beyond our dreams. Uh, the word axios refers to someone, therefore, who's qualified. Right? Jesus was qualified, the lamb slain, because of what he did. He's qualified to do something. When you believed in Christ as your Savior, you became a born-again believer and you were made worthy. Right? You're worthy of the kingdom of God. Case in point is that you will you can't lose your salvation. So you have eternal life and you will be in the kingdom of God forever and ever and ever. So that your destiny proves that you are worthy. Now God turns around and says, I want you to walk, to live worthy of your calling, which we see in Second Thessalonians. We also see prominently in Ephesians and in Colossians, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. So the word means, axios means to be qualified for something, and it also means to do the things that that qualification uh, produces. So if I'm, say, I'm qualified as a great athlete, then I'm going to do great athletic things. If I'm qualified as a, as a surgeon, I'm going to do great surgery, and so on. If I'm qualified as being in Christ, who's the lamb slain, who loves and endures and has faith and prays and do all the things that he does, if he's qualified me to be like him, and he has, and I'm worthy of him, then I must do the things that are worthy of him. And so look at Acts 5.41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. They were brought before the council. They were verbally abused. They were physically abused. And when they left, they were like, that was awesome. (laughs) They didn't say, where's the closest lawyer? That was completely unfair. We're going to sue the Sanhedrin. No. They went and joined the others. And if you continue reading in chapter 5, the whole community rejoiced. This is the community that shared everything in common. This is the community of the early church. They prayed. They were filled with the Spirit. They rejoiced because of the life that they had because they were worthy. And therefore, what a change in the world. The poorest of the poor, the slave, the lame, the lowest of the low are now made worthy in Christ Jesus. So, It's not just suffering, though, is it? So We could read Acts 5 here, Acts 5.41, and say, well, this, to be worthy is to suffer. It's not just suffering. Anybody, a lot of people suffer uh, for not the right reason. What makes us worthy is that reason why we suffer. Those who follow Christ, as Christ promised, we will suffer in this world because the world hates Him. So we will suffer in kind. What makes us worthy is not the suffering itself, is the reason why we suffer. Make that very clear. We're not ascetics. If no suffering comes upon us for walking the path, great, even greater. If suffering does come upon us for walking the narrow road, then we're worthy of it. And we have to know that, that there's a reason why we're suffering. It's not just suffering for the sake of suffering. So, I'll close with this. God plans everything. 
And one of the things that's planned, which is very obvious in the Scripture, is the birth of Christ. Christ was born at the proper time and for many reasons. I meant to put a picture of Augustus on the board, but whatever, maybe you've seen a statue of him. But Christ was born during the Roman Empire, and during the Roman Empire, uh, the time that he was born, the empire was ruled by Augustus Caesar, or Caesar Augustus. His real name was Gaius Octavius. He became the emperor of Rome in 27 B.C. Uh, if Christ, we think Christ was born somewhere around 4 B.C., according to the Julian calendar. So uh, about 23 years before the birth of Christ, Gaius Octavius is the Caesar. He is the emperor. Now, what's interesting about Caesar here is that he rid uh, or really destroyed the power The Senate still lived on, but there was no more republic. The Republic of Rome was gone, and it would never return. It would just go from emperor to emperor to emperor. Jesus was born during the first Caesar. And that is depicted in this, sorry, depicted in this awesome painting uh, where you can see up in the top, and I can, I'm going to draw on a, on a priceless piece of art. Uh, up here is Caesar. And if you look in town, ta- I, I spent some time looking at all this. There's people dead by his throne, and there's slaves in the side, and there's uh, people from all nations, and some, of, some are worshiping him. Some are dead at the altar at, at his feet. And then down here in the front, this artist put, the birth of Christ, and nobody's looking at the child, nobody, and that's how the artist is depicting this, and the the angel, there's an angel there protecting them, that's him above the the, uh, manger there, and I can't really tell, I didn't look up anything about this painting, but he's looking off to the side, I don't know what he's looking at, but um, he's definitely not looking at Caesar. And so this painting depicts that Christ, the true king, comes into the world when there is the first ruling emperor of a worldwide, or the known world at the time, empire. Uh, Augustus was a political and an organizational genius. And he, there was a hundred years of civil war before Augustus came, became king, And he brought peace to the empire. And people loved him for it. They loved him. They adored him. They called him a god. And this is where Caesar worship actually started. And right into this world where Caesar would rule by sword, he would rule by threats, he would rule by his army, that what would be valued in this kingdom would be power and riches and lust and all of that. You know, everything that's wrong with the world would be valued by this kingdom. And coming into this very kingdom would be the king of all. And how does he come? As a child. As an infant. Embodied in him. As God, the creator. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. And he comes into this world as a king, as an infant. 
And how would his incarnation end? In death. In sacrifice. And it's so antithetical. The pain breaks marvelously. The real world, the real kingdom, comes into the old kingdom. And you and I are part of the kingdom that he made, the baby. And we're living in the kingdom that continues in the same way as it did in Rome. Nothing's changed. Power, wealth, lust, everything. Nothing's changed. So, what's valuable? What's valuable to you? What's valuable, really valuable in this world? And that we need to be reminded of and it needs to be clarified for each of us consistently. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the the truth of this letter that we've begun. Thank you that in it, Father, you have started us off wonderfully with the value of life, the value that is in your Son, the worthy Lamb, the worthy Lion. He's both. And Father, we thank you for him. We thank you for all he has done. And we thank you for our salvation and eyes to see what is true. And we ask in Christ's name, amen.